The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're honored to speak to Sheikh Fahad Taslim. How are you, Sheikh Fahad? Assalamu uh, alaikum. I'm doing well. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Happy to have you here. Sheikh Fahad here. is the head of Sapiens Institute USA and the founder of various pioneering dawah and entrepreneurial projects. He is the author of No Doubt, 10 Effective Strategies on How to Deal with Your and Other People's Doubts. Sheikh Fahad completed graduate studies in Middle Eastern studies with a focus on Islamic theology. He is a researcher and teacher of various Islamic sciences and has studied Islamic thought and theology with senior local and international scholars. Now, Muslims and Christians have been in continuous uh, dialogue and debate about their respective faiths since the advent of the Prophet Muhammad And one of the contentious topics that always arises is that of salvation. Many Christians are under the impression that Muslims believe that salvation can be earned by doing good works. And many of them also believe that Christian and not Islamic teachings on salvation harmonize, perfectly harmonize between God's infinite justice and mercy. Inshallah, Sheikh Fahad will be shedding light on these ideas and much more. Sheikh, whenever you're ready, the floor is all yours. Perfect. Presentation's up, looking good. All right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalatu wassalam ala rasuli al-Kareem al-Mabad. So first off, um, Jazakallah khair. Uh, Assam is uh, it's an honor to be here. You know, I, I benefit a lot from uh, blogging theology podcast and you know sessions and things like that. So you guys are doing an amazing job. So may I accept it from you and make it heavy on your scales. I mean, I mean, okay. So let's go ahead and get started in earnest. Um, so what? There we go. So what I wanted to start off with is something that in a lot of dialogue and discussion between you know Muslims and Christians. Um, there's always this effort to start off with something that we agree upon. And, you know, I think Christians have certain motivations to do this. Obviously, we as Muslims have a certain motivation to do this. And I noticed in a lot of, and this goes back, I want to say maybe 10, 15 years, 
that there's this phrase that's kind of used in many dialogues and debates and things like that, where they say, look, let us all agree that we are all sinners before God. And you'll see this kind of over and over and over again. And I started thinking about this statement because, you know, it's it's used, um, you know, a lot of Muslims use it. I think I recently heard it in a Jummah Khutbah. And the reason why I'm kind of starting with this statement is because I think that when this statement is put forth, there are a number of underlying assumptions and let's say philosophical presuppositions that are built into the statement. Okay. So the first thing that we'll notice is that the statement is in the nominal form, right? So we are all sinners before God in the sense that it's not stated as we all sin mm. before God or we, we, you know, we do sins. Mm. And so right from there, you'll notice that there are certain things that, that what's in the mind and what is the presupposition in the mind of a Christian is going to be very different than what's presupposed in the mind of a, of a Muslim. Mm. And what happens is that when we don't kind of expose these differences or we don't uncover some of those differences, we may end up talking past each other, right? Which is a disservice to, you know, uh, the Islamic discourse and a disservice to, you know, Christian discourse. Um, and so, and, and so, and so that being the case, when you look at a statement like this, again, in the nominal form, there are certain things that are assumed, certain things that are brought to the table. So for instance, the fact that it's in the nominal form, the noun, sinner, it, it, it speaks to something about identity, right? And so when we're talking about identity, it's as if the prime, primary identity of a human being is based on their status of sin. So that becomes, that, that takes a role of primacy, right? Now, again, it's not explicitly stated, but the implicit way, the way the statement is phrased is that identity, your identity is a sinner first and foremost more than anything else. It's almost raised up. Now, again, as we're going to see, if you juxtapose that with the kind of Islamic worldview, you find that that's not our primary identity, right? In fact, that belies many of um, many of, of ways in which we identify with ourselves and we identify with, with the creator. Um, it also has a certain type of, it also informs of, informs of uh, us of a certain type of um, understanding of actions, right? Uh, it almost, in a sense, arrests agency away from the person. Because if your identity is one of a sinner, it's almost like it's a type of permanent uh, mark that you have. And the concept of choosing to sin or not to sin is, in a sense, arrested away from the person, mm. right? By this type of phrasing, right? So it, 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 it speaks about agency versus impotence. Um, it also speaks about how we understand the concept of sin as well, right? Uh, when we think about sin, as we're going to see, that there is the idea, again, of this type of permanence when it comes to sin, that even when it comes to one's desire, your desire in and of itself is equal to the sin itself, which again, belies the Islamic position, because as we're going to see, that desire and sin are two different things, whereas in early Christianity, you found that these two things were conflated. And to the detriment of, you know, uh, of many people that I think would, I, I would argue, and, and I've argued this in other places, that actually reaches us today when we're trying to now navigate issues of identity, action, and desire um, with kind of the LGBTQ ideology and things like that. It's kind of like, it's almost a throwback to early Christianity and how those ideas were amalgamated. Um, it also speaks about anthropology, who or what is a human being. Uh, and finally, because God is mentioned, theology. So the nature of God is presupposed, um, you know, nature of the human being is presupposed. And what you bring to the table 
um, that's going to inform how the discussion is going to go. So unless you kind of uncover these things, you're really, uh, you know, you're going to be, we're going to be talking past each other. And of course, when when we start in, in a discussion with, with our Christian friends and our neighbors and things like that, the idea is that we are coming to the table in an earnest and sincere uh, search for the truth, right? And so a lot of times when I start these discussions, I usually say, look, I'm, I, I would like us to stand in the possibility that we can be wrong. You know, and I, and I like that phrase. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Amazing because, you know, very few people are going to be like, no, I refuse. I just, I cannot be wrong, right? It's not, it's not something so interesting because it makes them look bad, right? I, I think I had a discussion the other day with, uh, with, my, with my kid's uh, principal and I kind of started with this because I had to discuss something. I was like, let us start in the possibility. Let's stand in the possibility. And she was like, yes, of course, we're going to do that. Right. So so I think that's a good good position to start with. Um, OK, so moving on now. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a look at um, how the Adamic paradigm is mentioned in the Bible and compare that to the Adamic paradigm as it's mentioned in the Quran. Now, the reason I wanted to do it in this format um, well, I'll tell you where this kind of format comes from. So there was a, a few years ago uh, when I was at UT Austin and one of the professors in the religious studies department, they had me uh, guest teach one of their classes. And in this class, what the professor would do is they would take uh, prophets mentioned in the Bible and prophets mentioned in the Quran and just have the students read the passages almost side by side. Okay. Now, obviously, one, one of the things and, and at the environment at the time was such that you had people that had this impression of kind of Islam and Muslims as, you know, kind of these, uh, what would you say, like just violent terrorists that are going around trying to propose, you know, trying to perpetuate, you know, violence or something like that. And when this group of students, they came together and they read the passages on Adam. So I was assigned, you know, they went through different prophets, Adam, Noah, so on and so forth. So interestingly enough, I was assigned Adam and Jesus. So if you know about kind of the, 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 the kind of the Christian connection between these two, it's like kind of Adam's the starting point and Jesus is the ending point. But anyhow, so when we went through the, the passages on Adam, we went through the passages of Adam in the Quran, um, there was a lot of interesting reactions. Uh, one of those reactions was, uh, you know, the God that's portrayed in the Quran was unexpected for us, right? Um, we expect, expected the, Quran, the, the God of the Quran to be wrathful, to have vengeance. And yet when we compared it, particularly in this story, we found the, the God as, as God as portrayed in the Adamic story in the Bible to be a lot more harsh, a lot more, uh, you know, uh, a lot more uh, like uh, just kind of mean in a certain sense, right? Whereas when you look at the Adamic story in the Quran, you found that the nature of God was someone that was soft, someone that was merciful, someone that was ever turning, and so on and so forth. Um, so let's go ahead and start this with Ernest. And 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 just one thing before I start as well, and I think it's really important to to mention. For my 
you know, how I approach the Bible, one of the things that I like to do is I like to read it as it is and not try to superimpose kind of my worldview on it. And so I generally try to just leave it alone. If there's a few comments I'll make here and there, but understanding that I'm going to be coming from an Islamic worldview, right? And I think that's really important uh, for the reason that when we're going to be reading a certain scripture, um, we may not be familiar with the her hermeneutics that are involved, right? And so therefore it may be a type of, um, you know, it, it may be kind of um, not, it, it may not be kind of an honest reading based on a Christian worldview. And that's something that I think that what we can do is we can say, look, here's the reading in, in the Bible. That's just how it is. I'm not going to try to, you know, presuppose an understanding, say this is how it must be understood and kind of jettison, you know, years of hermeneutics that have been involved in, in understanding the Bible. So you'll notice that I'm just going to take a, a very uh, brief look at the story in the Bible, just so we have an understanding so that we can then take that understanding and compare it with more detail to the story of Adam in the Quran. So just as a kind of a, a, a footnote here. Okay, so let's start off. So this, uh, what I've taken these passages from the uh, chapter of Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 23. And it starts off uh, with, now the serpent had, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, uh, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the scenario here is, again, we've kind of, we've come to the point where they're in the garden, the serpent here, uh, which is, you know represents the devil in a certain way or Satan in a certain way. He says to Adam, or says, excuse me, says to Eve, says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did, did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, let me just stop here and interject for a second. The concept of death as having a type of significance in understanding salvation, you know, we can see kind of the seeds of that starting right here, right? Because then this concept of, well, death is kind of the, the consequence. And so it becomes very central to the, 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 the Christian understanding of salvation, all right? So you can see some of the, the genesis of that idea starting in Genesis. All right. So the serpent then says, you will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so now, you know, he's basically telling her, as the verse kind of clearly mentions, that this is, you'll become godlike, you know. And again, what happens is, is that when that reading, when some of those students were doing that reading at UT Austin, they said that that kind of vengeful God that came up with someone was like a jealous God, right? That now they're going to be competing with me in this form of, you know, that, that this God would be jealous. Like, how dare you take on divine, you know, some sort of divinity, whereas that's only within my domain, right? That's kind of the impression you get. And it kind of, you can see that here at, at the starting point. Um, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, uh, when, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, and let me stop here and interject just for a second as well. You know, it's interesting that um, when we look at the concept of original sin, 
right? And we'll, we'll try to get into this a little bit later. But when we look at the concept of original sin and how that moves from one generation to the next, it moves in a type of hereditary fashion, right? So it's inherited from one person, you know, from one couple to the next to the next. And what I thought was interesting was that, you know, the concept of lust and sex, right? Where we kind of divide these concepts up, you know, we say, okay, well, sex is the actual action. Lust is the, the, the desire itself. Um, you, you have a concept that comes from, um, I believe it was uh, uh, St. Augustine, right? Augustine of Hippo. And he talks about this concept called um, concupiscence, right? What we may call libido. Concupiscence is, is you know, this concept that, you know, he, he was trying to deal with something like uh, involuntary sexual desire. And he's really struggling with this. Like, how do I, you know, when I, like, let's say I happen to glance at a woman or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden I have this desire. Um, how do we, how do we deal with it? And and is it something that is sinful? And so this, this he has this discussion in his, in his confessions. Um, and he comes up with this concept of concupiscence, right? Or, or what we call libido. Now, when we think of libido, it's almost specifically in the realm of, 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 of sex. But libido has a little bit more to do with kind of other desires. In fact, you can even extend it into, um, you know, um, eating and drinking, just desires in general that we would have. But um, what he basically taught is that the that sort of original sin that we're seeing here, where the woman eats and then gives it to Adam and so on and so forth, that is transmitted by way of concupiscence, right? And this is this um, this kind of this 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 desire that is sinful uh, that it happens and it's lust specifically. So by the sinful desire this sin is transmitted generation by generation inherited with each and every single child that's born, all right? Now, the, notice the starting point is not only the original sin, but the transfer of the sin is also a sin, right? So it's a sin that works through another sin because the desire of lust is what what is, what is, what is kind of at, at root here. Now, the other thing that's interesting is that when you look at the concept of lust, uh, Early Christians, when they were trying to understand, you know, how do we understand sex itself? Because in, in the Bible, for instance, mentioned, um, you know, be fruitful and multiply. So on one hand, there's a command in the Bible that says, okay, well, you know, be fruitful and multiply, indicating that you should have, you know, uh, marital relations. On the other hand, you still enjoy those marital relations. And so how do you now reconcile these two things? And early on in, in Christian history, you had kind of a, a, a somewhat of a sex negative view. Um, I was reading this book on the history of celibacy. Don't ask me why, but <laughs> I was kind of looking through it and, you know, it was, it was a pretty thick book and, you know, and, and I was looking for, what does it say about Islam? And I, I found one page, which was, you know, and so it had like early Christianity, late Christianity, um, Islam in the middle. And then it had like something like Hinduism and so on and so forth. And, and, and so it was kind of the Islam section was right there in the middle it was one page that was shared with Islam and Judaism. <laughs> like it wasn't even a full page dedicated to the Islamic, you know, the Islamic framework. And in that, it just said, okay, well, these two are basically sex positive uh, worldviews or religions, and then we'll just move on. Um, anyhow, so coming back to what I was, what I was mentioning, and we'll come back to the story here. Um, so, you know, th that original sin gets, gets moved forward by way of a kind of a type of sin itself. It's rooted in lust, concupiscence that, um, you know, obviously Nepipo comes up with um, and so on and so forth. So let's come back to the story because I don't want to get too bogged down with, with some of these details just yet, inshallah. Okay. Um, 
So uh, she also gave the husband who was with her, he ate from it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves uh, together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. Okay, now again, there's many things that we could say about this. I'm gonna leave that alone and park that for now related to the nature of God and things like that when we get to that section in the uh, in the in the Quranic um, uh, narrative of, of the Adamic story. Um, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting here is the fact that on one hand, we would say that, you know, generally we could agree by and large that God is omniscient, that he has, you know, the entirety of knowledge. And yet there's a question here that's asked as if that perhaps that that God needs to be informed of the the, the you know the, the spatial reality of Adam and Eve like where are where are these two individuals um, as if perhaps he doesn't know okay he answered I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid now this is obviously referring to Adam uh, and he said who told you that you were naked this is going back to God have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from again the idea that God is almost you know, inquiring from Adam, this is information that I need. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that this is kind of what happened. Perhaps he was just inquiring for rhetorical effect, whatever it might be. I know there's a number of explanations that can be given, but from my kind of general reading of it, it seems like there is something where, okay, well, it's almost like God is taken by surprise in a certain sense. Um, now, is that an absolute reading? Again, I'm not going to claim that, but you get that sense, right, from reading the reading the passage. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, uh, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, now he's talking to the serpent here, um, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust, all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush uh, your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. To the woman, now the attention turns to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, again, let me just add a, a couple, uh, couple points here. You know, for someone that's that's read the Adamic story in the Quran for someone that's um, that is is aware of the Islamic tradition when they understand like women in Islam and things like that. This is a bit you get taken aback a bit, right? It's almost like you know if you if you read a thing, wow, that 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 seems like it's almost like God is putting the woman in a certain position to you know just it, it's like a punishment for her specifically. And so when you look at certain concepts like childbirth and childbearing and you kind of fast forward to modernity and you kind of, let's say, fast forward through feminism, right? Whatever wave you want to pick, um, you can kind of maybe even sympathize with some of the feminist movements and say, hold on a second, if this is kind of what's coming from it, the Bible, and of course, this wasn't something that the Enlightenment kind of immediately, you know, jettisoned as a concept. I mean, I think even Voltaire had the opinion that, you know, that women were, were, were less than men. In fact, they were, they were maybe not even considered human or subpar humans, or something like this, right? Um, and and those and, and the remnants of this sort of idea of the status of women 
you can kind of still find all the way through the enlightenment. And in fact, even, you know, you go to, let's say, first wave and second wave feminism. Um, and it's maybe not even till, you know, certain, let's say the last 50 years or 100 years where some of these concepts have really been uh, looked at a little more carefully and said, hold on a second, you know, how, what is the status of the woman and so on and so forth. But again, for, for, the, for the Muslim eyes that are reading this particular, this particular passage, it immediately strikes you because a lot of times we get kind of put under the gun to say, okay, well, you know, you guys don't give women their rights and so on and so forth. And so immediately this kind of strikes the, the Muslim eyes, um, you know, a bit, a bit strange. Okay. To Adam, he says, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you commanded you and he gives the command, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So another kind of comment here is that what we're seeing is that this is now clearly something that's going to be a punishment, that which follows, right? It's going to be something that, you know, this is in terms of, is there a concept of a human project? You don't really see that. You see like, okay, this was an action that you did. Here's the response to this action. This is the punishment you're going to have. All right. Uh, by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. And I'm assuming that in the original language, whatever that may be, uh, perhaps Eve has something to do with the concept of, of life, right? Um, I know there is, you know, that concept within the Arabic language, but again, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I brought up, you know, with, with some of the discussion with some Christians that I had was that the idea that when it comes to the language of the Bible, um, and again, this is why I don't like to get too deep into hermeneutics of the Bible, because there's so many unknowns, right? So even if we said, you know, the preservation of the Bible was 100%, you still have the, the, the challenge of the language itself right? Uh, you know, I, I was I was speaking about uh, Muslim Spain just the other day. We were there uh, some time ago. And um, and I was mentioning that when it came to uh, uh, the first dictionary in Hebrew, you don't find the first dictionary until maybe the, let's say, 10th or 11th century. And that dictionary, the first version of it, I think, is maybe 70 to 80 words taken from a certain Hebrew poem. So the very concept of kind of codifying uh, definitions of words doesn't come up until, you know, 10th, 11th century, not the 10th, 11th century, you know, 10, 11th centuries after um, Moses, mm -hmm. rather this is after Jesus. So how much more so could the language have morphed, right? And we know that languages change over time. And this is not something that's, that's foreign. I mean, even, you know, the Arabic language, as we know, it's not something that just stays stable. This is a feature of, it's a, a, you know, a linguistic reality. So if that's the case, the fact that you don't that we don't really have uh, a, a a robust kind of linguistic uh, you know evidence for let's say meanings of words and then you know grammar and things like that you know how much can we really be certain of what we're reading even if we say that we're going to read it in the quote unquote original Hebrew right and that's now if you you know if you if you want to augment the issue you're going to now say okay but then you're working with a translation which goes through Greek which then goes through English which goes through so on and so forth and now what you're reading maybe you'll get a semblance of the original, but then how do we really know kind of what was being spoken and in what sense and what was the context, so on and so forth. But anyhow, so that's 
I think that was, a, oh, there's one more here. So the Lord God made garments uh, uh, of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Um, and later on, it kind of, uh, it, 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 uh, it, you know, Genesis mentions that, you know, that there were some guards, in a sense, assigned to the tree, as if this was something of a real threat that, you know, someone else may become godlike, right? Um, anyhow, so that was just a brief overview of, 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 of Genesis 3, kind of the Adamic story that's found in, in Genesis. Um, so let me just move on to the Quranic paradigm now. Um, okay. So moving on to the Quranic paradigm or moving on to the Quranic narrative here of, of, uh, of Adam, uh, there's a couple of things that we want to note before we enter into this, this, this narrative. Okay. The first thing is that if a person has been kind of understand or understanding the story of Adam um, in the way we just narrated it, we want to ask the person to kind of stand in the possibility that that story may not be 100% accurate right and this is something that you know just kind of as a, as 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 a as a moment of moment of introspection to say you know what maybe that story as it's been understood maybe that's not the entirety of the story maybe there are certain things that are different in the story and that maybe the islamic tradition can inform us of something that would you know something that would that that would be a benefit to me and my understanding of the purpose of life and so on and so forth so just kind of stand in that possibility so um, the story starts off, this is taken from the second chapter of the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter of the, the cow. I'll mention the Arabic first, um, and then I'll read the translation, because I think the Arabic is, is important. Uh, it starts off, uh, And mention, when your Lord said to the angels, right, that I'm going to place upon the earth a khalifa. Okay, let's stop here for a second. First of all, right off the bat, we're seeing that there is a conversation that's happening between the angels and God. And in this conversation, there is a plan in place. In other words, this is not something that's going to be a reaction, right? That let's say Adam did something and the reaction of that was being banished to the earth in response as a punishment for a sin. This is now being planned up right, right, you know, right up front, right? And, and God is now declaring out. He's telling them, look, I'm going to place upon the earth a khalifa. Now I know uh, when we think of caliphs and, 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 and khalifa and the term, it's kind of signifies kind of religious authority or something like this. But in this context, you could take it as, you know, kind of generations after generations, one succeeding another. So khalifa comes from the trilateral root khalif or khalf, which means back, which means that which kind of comes from the back, one following the other. So you can have generations of people following other people in a sense. Okay. Um, the other kind of interesting point here is that it says that um, fil khalifa. and that the form of I'm going to make upon the earth, it is not something that is, let's say, as a future plan. It's not in the in 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 the in the in the in the future tense or let's say the present future tense. That verb would be something else. Right, ajalu. Right, it would be something or saajalu or something like this. But it's jailun, as if the plan was already there, and even the processing of the plan is already there. In other words, this is this is planned, right? And it's it's what's going to happen. In fact, in a sense, it's already happened. 
right? You get that feeling from the fact that the term, the word there is ja'ilun, right? Okay, qalu. And so the angels respond, right? Ataj'alu fiha man yufsidu fiha wa yasfiquddima. Are you going to place on it, on the earth, right? Uh, place upon a one who causes corruption and sheds blood. And this, you know, what I think is really profound about this is that this is the question that many people ask. Like, why would God, you know, create humans in the first place? You, know, you look at all the evil and all the suffering in the world. You know, you look at just, you know, the world wars that happen, you know, uh, you know, to make it a little more uh, relevant to our current day and age. You look at Oppenheimer, the creation of the atom bomb. How many, you know, two cities were decimated and the results of that go generations Right, where we're still, you know, perhaps some people are still reeling from the effects of that of that bomb, and so you have these human beings that are causing this destruction and evil on the earth. That's a good question, right? Like that's a, you know, th those angels know what they're talking about. That's that's a question that even I have, and I think that's really that's profound as a starting point because the angels are asking that very same question that many of us would have. Now, um, and then the angels continue. And while, you know, you're going to create these beings, they're going to, you know, wreak havoc on the earth, uh, they're going to shed blood, whereas you have the angels, you know, these pure beings that we're not doing any of that. And that's kind of what's being said. And we, we we're praising you and we're glorifying you. Um, and the response, and many times I think people might consider the response a bit anticlimactic, uh, is that, Indeed, I know that which you do not know. And so you're thinking, okay, you're you're preparing for this response. It's like, well, I know what you don't know, all right. So it's almost like, really, that that's the response. Is that really what it is? Um, but of course, it doesn't stop there. The the, the verses continue and it says, Adam al asma kullaha, and he taught Adam the names, all of them. And here, what we can we can see is that when we talk about names and this, this is there's a whole discourse on this in 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 in, in the islamic uh, paradigm but what exactly does it mean that he was taught the names so here it's indicative of the the the, uh, the the linguistic ability that the human being would have and when we think about kind of language and and how it operates it's one of those things that has a just an amazing um amazing phenomenology right because it ties in with reason and we're gonna I'm gonna explore this a little deeper later, but just for now, when we when we think about how we name things, when you name something, um, it is a sign for a, a, a something that's real, right? So if I say, you know, this is this is a cup. Now the word cup is not the actual reality of the cup; it's a sign for something else. Now what that does is that it allows human beings to be able to communicate in such a way that they can transfer knowledge generation after generation and remember he's going to place upon the earth khalifa one generation coming after the next so what we find is that reason itself by way of this linguistic gift that's been given to the human being is something that's cumulative over time right we're able to build upon what you know we're able to study things like history and we're able to build upon theories and things like that and therefore this human project starts to take shape one aspect of that is that knowledge is cumulative and there's going to be a type of kind of intellectual progress over time. Now, why that's important? Because this also, uh, one of, the, one of the, the critiques or one of the things that some Christians may mention is that, look, you know, um, why would God need to send uh, Muhammad? 
right? He sent Jesus, right? And, and by sending Jesus, the entire uh, kind of uh, a mechanism of sin and salvation was complete. So why send another prophet? From our understanding, we say, no, look, if it's true that human beings, you know, that knowledge is cumulative, it means that the human project is developing intellectually over time by way of language. And so what happens is, is that you're going to have prophets that are being sent at a specific time, at a specific place, at a specific collective intellectual maturity of the human beings, right? And so if you, just to, just to give an example, if you think about like Moses and the Ten Commandments, right? And you compare that to, let's say, a child who's growing up. Now, when someone is, you know, when you, when you have children, generally you're not going to be having deep conversations about theophilosophy with them, right? You're going to tell them just distinct rules. Do this and don't do this. It's very straightforward. And as they mature, then you can start to explore kind of deeper philosophical concepts. You can explore kind of more existential, uh, you know, concepts and things like that. But initially, because as a parent, you understand that the, the child may not have the capacity to understand why something might be right or wrong, right? So I think the other day, um, uh, someone was, you know, one of my kids was asking, can I watch such and such a movie? And I told them, well, you know, you can't. And they're like, well, you watched it, right? And I said, well, that's different, you know? And I was like, well, why can't you watch it? Now, I just said, look, you just have to trust me and that when you grow up, I'll be able to explain it to you because I can't really tell them that, look, I feel that there's certain, let's say, sexual innuendos in this movie, which I think would be harmful. And I don't think you should be exposed to that. I mean, they're not really going to get grasp all that. So if you if you take that as, as, as an analogy of the human project, you find that you have stages, intellectual stages. And so if we understand God as being maximally perfect in his wisdom, he's sending prophets and messengers for a specific context at a specific time. Now, what's interesting was that there is a, um, a scholar out of the subcontinent, um, uh, and he kind of, he, he studied um, philosophy and the history of philosophy, like intellectual history of philosophy, with quite some detail. And um, um, I'm actually forgetting his, his name off the top of my head. I'm sure it'll come back to me. But one of the things that he mentioned was that when you study it, when you study um, the intellectual history uh, of kind of like the global kind of trans-historic intellectual history, you find that philosophy and, 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 and philosophical concepts come to a certain uh, apex. There's a certain culmination. After which point, yes, you have new things that are coming up in philosophy, but those things are almost rehashing certain concepts that are a throwback to that apex. And that apex, in his opinion, comes right around the time of the sending of the Prophet Muhammad, right? And so, and there's other kind of, you know, things that he, he mentions to augment that by saying, look, you now have kind of mass communication, you have the internet, you have all of these other things that kind of, uh, you know, kind of give credence to this idea that it makes sense that there would be a last and final messenger sent to all of humanity. Um, and so in the response to, well, why did God have to send another, another prophet? We understand that that was part of the plan to begin with. And, you know, we get, we get indications of that from this particular verse. All right. So, um, so he teaches Adam's names of everything. Uh, he places them in front of the angels and he says, right? So tell me the names of these things, um, of these things in Kuntum if you are telling the truth. Now, the angelic response, right? Far removed, far exalted are you from, from any of this. 
that we do not have any knowledge except what you have taught us, right? Indeed, Indeed, it is you who is knowing and wise. Okay, so you see the response from the angels. And then he says to Adam, he says, Qala, Ya Adam, Ambihum bi asma'ihim. Oh Adam, inform them of their names. Falamma, and when he does inform them of their names, Qala, God then says, Alam akullakum inni a'lamu ghayba samawati wal ard. Did I not tell you that I know the unseen aspects of the heavens and the earth? And I know what you reveal and what you conceal. Okay. Now, if you go back to that initial question and where God says, I know that which you do not know, it's as if the angels are kind of putting something forth to God and saying, look, why would you create such a being? And now he's kind of pointed towards, you know, reason. He's pointed towards language. He's pointed towards this development of the human being as if to say, look, there is a human potentiality that you were not really seeing, right? But it's right there, and part of that has to do with language, right? We see that you know, in, in the phenomena of language itself. Okay, so this human project, one thing that we can take from it is that there is human reason. But a second aspect of that is that part of that is free choice, is, is choice, that human beings can choose to do good or evil. And the third thing that I'll kind of mention here as part of the human project is suffering. Because a lot of times, again, going back to that question, the question arises, why do human beings suffer, right? And a lot of times as we are navigating fate, as we're navigating our respective, our respective religions and things like that, um, this question becomes front and center because now it ceases to be just an intellectual exercise to something that affects me directly. And so I think it's important for us to understand, you know, what does suffering have to do with this entire human project that's being put forth? Okay, so where are we going to go from here? Since we are talking about the human project, we will revisit those verses. We'll come back to the rest of the story. But we want to now look at how do we understand the human being from the Islamic framework, right? So we'll start off with something we call identity metaphysics. There's a famous example of the ship of Theseus. Theseus. Hopefully I pronounced that right, right? And so the way this, this thought experiment goes is that you... You can imagine that the, that uh, thesis has a ship, and this ship, you know, if you imagine that there's, it has, you know, one of the planks, it's removed and it's replaced with another plank. Okay, and that plank is put on the side, and then yet another plank is removed, put on the side, and it's replaced by another plank. Now, if if all the planks and all the the, the components of this ship are replaced, and in the meantime, with the replacement parts, you form a new ship. We we ask the question, which one? is the ship of thesis, right? It's kind of like, uh, it, it becomes a bit of a, okay, so well, which one is the ship of thesis? It's, 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 very, it's, 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 it's a challenging question. Um, and similarly, we can ask the question about our very selves, right? And something in which I call Islamic mythology. So in the Quran, uh, there's a verse where, where you know, Muslims say, God says, uh, do not be like those who forgot God, so God caused them to forget themselves. And so one of the questions, you know, if we were to think about this, who would be the quintessential people that forgot God? I mean, maybe from one perspective, it would be atheists or agnostics, let's just say. Okay. Now, how, did they really forget themselves? Did they forget to, like, get up in the morning and brush their teeth? Did they forget to, uh, you know, do they not have dreams and aspirations? 
Do they not go to college? Do they not want to get married? What does it mean that, you know, that if, you know, don't be like those who forgot God, so God caused them to forget themselves? Well, it goes back to understanding who we are. When we ask the question kind of, you know, ontologically, like what is our being? When I say this is my hand, in the sentence, who is the my? Right? If I say this is my beard, who is, you know, my beard? Who's the my in the sentence? Right? Or to give kind of a kind of extend that, um, let's say, and may God protect all of us, we get into a car accident and you lose your legs. So are you still you? Well, you probably have answered the affirmative. If you lose your arms, are you still you? Um, if you lose kind of other so in the end, what makes you you? There's something that kind of transcends your material physical body. Okay. And so what is that particular thing from the Islamic framework? We say that that particular thing is what's known as the ruah or the soul or the spirit. Now, since we are talking about Adam, uh, and we do want to kind of establish that there's a difference between a, a bodily reality or a material reality for the human being, and that it is a composition of both material and spiritual, there's a hadith that's mentioned in the collection of Muslim, uh, where Anas reports that the, the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that when God fashioned Adam in paradise, he left him for as long as he will to leave him there. Then Iblis, and here's what Iblis means, the devil or, or Satan, roamed around him to see what actually this creature was. And then when he found him hollow from within, he recognized that Adam had been created with a disposition that he would not have control over himself. Now, why I'm mentioning this is because when we think about desire, and we, we want to understand how does this, how do we understand sin and desire and the relationship between the two? Desire, by and large, generally within the Islamic paradigm, is rooted in your material reality, by and large. Okay. And so with this particular hadith, we see that when Satan is looking at Adam, this is just the empty shell, this is just the material body, he's seeing that he has a disposition to not have control over himself, meaning desires in and of themselves are blind, right? So if you think of like the animal kingdom, um, there's no concept of morality in the animal kingdom. You don't see a lion hunting down a gazelle in the middle of the hunt, you know, the, the gazelle says, stop, I find what you're doing morally reprehensible, you must stop this you know, horrendous thing that you're doing. Uh, that, that concept isn't there. Desires by and large are blind, right? So, and so with, with the animal kingdom, uh, you find that, they work on instinct. So if they want to eat, they'll eat. If they want to drink, they'll drink. If they want to have relations, they'll have sexual relations, whatever it might be. But again, the interesting thing is, is that what Satan or Iblis here is missing is that that's not the entirety of the human being, right? The entirety of the human being is that there's also a ruah or a component, a spiritual component. Um, in the story, actually, let me go, let me see if it's, it's mentioned here because I need to actually go back to that. Okay. Um, here we go. Let me go back to the story and I'll come back to this point in just a second. In the story, after, um, you know, the angels have this discussion and the angels say, okay, you know that, which we, or, or, you know, you know, you are the one that's all knowing and so on and so forth. As we just mentioned, at that point, God then says and commands all of them. Right. And so mention when the angels, when we said to the angels here, you know, we meaning God prostrate before Adam. And so they prostrated, except for Iblis, except for Satan, he refused and was arrogant and became one of the disbelievers. Why that's important is because, coming back to what I was saying, 
you know, you had this empty shell. Who was the one that was prostrated to? Was it just the empty shell? In fact, it wasn't. From the Quran, we know, as this verse says, فَإِذَا سَوَيْتَهُ وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِ فَقَعُوا لَهُ سَاجِدِينَ And when I have proportioned him, in other words, made his physical body and so on and so forth, and placed in and breathed into him the ruh, right, the, the soul, now you will prostrate to him. Right? Now you're going to fall down to fall down prostrate to him. So clearly, the ruh and that, that spiritual component is extremely important. In fact, what we could say is human consciousness from an, from, uh, from an Islamic pneumatology point of view is rooted in the ruh. And there's certain um, linguistic phenomena in the Quran, which kind of I don't really want to get into in this particular presentation, but that are indicative of that. So when we think about an inner subjective experience, um, we find that that inner subjective experience is possible only if you have a ruh. It's not just, it's just not rooted in physical matter, right? Okay, so that being the case, um, what we can see is that when we look at the human being, we see that it's a component, it has a, a type of angelic component, which is the ruah, which is that spiritual component, and it has a type of animal component. And, you know, again, we said that desires are rooted in the material body, and that's why animals work on instinct. Um, when it comes to the angels, from the Islamic worldview, we know that angels are beings of light, Right as is uh, as I've stated in that uh, hadith from again the collection of Muslim, the Messenger of Allah. This is narrated by Aisha, anha. The Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, says angels were created from light, jinns were created from a smokeless flame of fire, and Adam was created from that which you've been told. So angels are created out of light; they're pure, and so on and so forth. The human is a composite of both of these things, and that becomes important. And, and I've quoted here. Um, uh, an erudite scholar of the Islamic tradition, Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, um, which is also affirmed by uh, Ibn Abdul Iz al-Hanafi. And when they talk about the ruah, and they say that the ruah is an entity which differs from, differs from the physical, tangible body, it is of a higher type of luminous, light-like being, alive, moving, and it penetrates the limbs, circulating through them as water circulates through the petals of a rose, as oil circulates through the olive, and as fire circulates through the burning embers of coal. So now... This particular uh, understanding is important, and here's why. Because it goes back to human potentiality. Remember, when God says, I know that which you do not know, what is the thing that the angels are missing? Yes, you have human beings that, that, will, that will succumb to their desires. They will fall and be the lowest of the low. But at the same time, by using their choice, their free choice, they can rise above the angels. Okay, so there's a potentiality of having development. You can become better, right? Going back to the concept of a human project, you find that when we were talking about reason and we were talking about free choice, that free choice is something that is in the human purview alone. Like angels, again, from an Islamic perspective, don't have free choice. Whatever they're commanded, they do. Animals work on instinct. They also don't have a free choice. It is only the human being that has a free choice. And one of the examples that's given in, um, in, 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 by some authors like Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, Imam al-Ghazali, is the, the, the concept or the virtuous um, uh, deed of patience. So if you think about patience, you know, say patience is, is a virtue, right? Um, angels don't exhibit patience, nor do animals. This is something that's solely in the realm of the human project. 
right? And that's solely um, based upon the idea of free choice. That's the only way you can have patience. And so if a person is patient with whatever sort of hardships they're going through, that means that they can actually elevate themselves spiritually in their spiritual development, okay? And of course, if they're not patient, they can succumb to their desires and they can fall down. But there is that potentiality there. And that's important to understand when we are looking at the human project in its, its entirety. Okay. All right. Um, so very quickly here, I've kind of tried to make a rough diagram of this. And I'm, you know, so forgive my uh, whatever skills you want to call these. But if we were to kind of encapsulate who or what is a human being. So you have kind of the spiritual heart there. And in that heart, you have the soul, right, or, or the ruah specifically. Um, and that ruah has a connection with what we call the fitra. And I'll get into this in, in just a second. Um, and we find that the there's pressures on this heart that kind of move it, you know, to kind of move it away from obeying the divine, right, obeying God. At the same time, you have an internal pressure where it wants to connect with the divine. So you've got this kind of back and forth that's happening. And what happens is, is that when you look at revelation, revelation comes to support that internal spiritual aspect of the human being. Okay. Now, again, I don't really have time to get into the, the entire details of this, um, uh, of, of this diagram, but just, I think it's suffice to know that we understand desires. They have a certain pressure. We understand the ruah, the spirituality. It has a certain pressure, which is we work in the opposite direction. And all of that is encompassed by what we call um, the fitra. Now, the fitra, it is basically this entire um, this entire nature that the human being is created upon. And this nature, as we know from, from the Quran, is rooted in being good. And it has, uh, you know, and then as a, as a formal definition or as, if, as a working definition, um, I know uh, Dr. Carl Sharif Atubki mentions this uh, as a formal definition, that you can define it as the original normative disposition. Right? So these three components, it is the original state in which a human being is created. So, for instance, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he mentions, he says, uh, like every child is born upon the fitrah. And then it is his parents that make him a Jew or a Christian or a Meiji, okay? Um, so that is the original state. But it also uh, informs us of what is what we may call normal. It has a normative component to it. What does that mean? Well, that particular hadith that I just mentioned, uh, in some narrations it mentions where the Prophet Muhammad says, when you see a, 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 uh, an animal, animal being born, uh, and it has some sort of defect, you detect that defect, right? In other words, if an animal was born without a limb, you understand that to not be normal, right? So our concept of what is normal, what's not normal, right? What is what is normative, it comes from our natural state, which is called the fitra, okay? So that's why, you know, when we talk about concepts like, um, you know, and, and the term normative is, 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 is quite popular nowadays, right? So people always ask, you know, are you uh, are you heteronormative, right? As as a kind of a negative, uh, you know, uh, a negative term, right? Like how how dare you, you know, how, you know, or are you cis normative, right? In other words, do you think that um, heterosexual, um, you know, uh, heterosexual relations are normal, and therefore homosexual interaction is not normal? Similarly, are you cis normative? 
Do you think, do you believe in two genders only? And that is normal, whereas other things are not normal, okay? So that concept of identifying something as being normative is also part of the fitrah, right? This is normal, this is not normal. And I sometimes give the example where I say, imagine that you walked outside and you saw people kind of walking upside down. Now you're not gonna go past that and be like, oh, that's normal and just keep going. Immediately you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize that as, okay, something's going on, right? Like something is wrong here. And so what is that identification? Where does it come from? We would say that it comes from the fitrah, right? So the original normative, and then it has a disposition. The disposition is a disposition of good. It's a disposition to believe in a creator and to believe that that creator is due worship. Okay, so that's just the fitra and that's the human nature, you know, um, in its entirety kind of encapsulates what we've been talking about here so far. Okay, um, and, and the other interesting aspect of that is that when you juxtapose that with the concept of original sin, I think this is where, you know, that the discussion will become important, is that the fitra for us is a type of original goodness. And so therefore, when it comes to, let's say, the vicissitudes of life, when you're going through ups and downs in life, um, your ability to navigate those things and identify this is good and this is bad comes from the predisposition of you being good. Um, this may be a bit kind of a, a deeper philosophical point. If a person's predisposition or their disposition is one of evil, then the lenses by which they're looking at things, how would they make judgment of good versus evil? They would think that evil is good and good is evil, right? Like, in other words, why would you identify certain virtues, all right? And that part of the human project, human nature, or let's say that that disposition, you find that in, in many facets of the human project, right? And so, for instance, when we look at um, uh, jurisprudence, right? Uh, and we could say you could look at jurisprudence transhistorically, not limited to one culture or one time or one place, uh, you'll find that there's kind of a, a general rule by and large, which is you are innocent until proven guilty, okay? Now, why are you innocent? Why do you start off as having no fault? Theologically, you know, from, from a Christian theological point of view, if, if you adopted the concept of original sin, your starting point should be, no, we are in a state of guilt and in a state of evil, and the, you know, the, the, the innocence has to be proven, right? As opposed to the guilt being proven. Um, but again, even when you look at, you know, constitutional law in the United States, common law, or whatever it might be, of course, when you look at Islamic law, this is this is foundational, right? Uh, there is a legal principle or a legal maxim uh, where um, you know the, the legal maxim is al-yaqin la yuzulu bishak. Certainty is not removed by doubt. Okay, now this has ramifications across uh, various facets of Islamic law, but one of those facets is when you have a, a a person and they've presented themselves, what are you certain about related to their disposition? And what is the doubt? So we say that we're certain about their goodness. We're certain that they are upon the fitrah. And what's doubtful is that they are not, right? And so certainty does not remove doubt. Innocence has to be proven. Okay, so you find that this concept of the, 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 the natural state of the human being, the fitrah, um, touches upon various aspects of, you know, what I'm calling the human project here. Okay. Um, so now let's move into the discussion of a sin. What do we mean by a sin? Um, Abu Huraira reports that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, 
Verily, when the servant commits a sin, a black mark appears on his heart. If he abandons his sin, seeks forgiveness, and repents, then his heart will be polished. If he returns to the sin, the blackness will be increased until it overcomes his heart. It is the covering that Allah has mentioned, and then he mentions a verse from the Quran. No, rather, a covering is over their hearts for what they have earned. Let me come back here for a second. If we understand that when a person commits a sin, so first of all, how does a sin work? A sin is not the desire. It's not just the presence of a desire. It is acting upon the desire. Once a person has acted upon that desire, now it constitutes a sin, a sin and there is a black dot that's placed upon the heart. Okay. Now, if we look at the heart, you'll notice that there's a connection to revelation. Revelation is the thing that's supposed to kind of ground you in terms of moving forth as being guided, as having kind of, um, you know, where our morals are derived from and so on and so forth, and where they're um, affirmed, morals being affirmed come from revelation as well. When the heart is now blackened, what happens is the person's getting cut off. So there's, um, th there's, there's a, an epistemic component here as well. How do you recognize something as being good? How do you recognize something as being virtuous? How do you recognize something as being moral, immoral? Your actions will actually impact that. And so that's why in the discourse in the Quran where it talks about God sealing up the hearts and things like that, and, and many criticisms have been offered about that, really it goes back to that human free choice. If a human chooses that, it's not that he does one sin and all of a sudden the heart is blocked, but it is progressively kind of more and more sins that this person starts taking on more and more and more evil. At the same time, the discourse in the Quran is one of turning back to God, as we're going to see when we finish up the, uh, the story of Adam from the Quran. But the point is, is that that kind of sealing off of the hearts is not something that just happens immediately. It happens over time by way of that human free choice. Okay. Um, so again, the three areas that I was talking about, reason, we spoke about that, free choice, we spoke about that. Now suffering, let me just spend a few minutes on that as well. Um, when we look at human suffering, Okay, now this brings it to a discussion where it's more personal, it's more real, it has to do with, you know, our own, you know, suffering that we may incur or suffering that we may see. Um, what is the purpose of suffering? You know, if we ask that question, we see that suffering has a purpose, right? It's like um, um, uh, uh, Viktor Frankl, where he says that if, if, my, if, my, um, uh, if my suffering has meaning, then my suffering isn't suffering, right? So when we talk about suffering, it, it is linked with the human project. It is only by way of being tested that a person would now be able to have spiritual development and spiritual growth, right? So sometimes I know there was a, an, uh, uh, an analogy that was given and it had to do with lobsters. Um, so Basam, are, are you familiar with lobsters? Have you studied lobsters? Probably not, right? Like, I don't care really to study lobsters, but nevertheless. Uh, I do eat them. So. <laughs> right, right. You never really think like, you know, I wonder what a lobster does. I wonder what its life is like. Not really. But anyway, don't, don't ask why, but somehow I stumbled upon like knowing about lobsters. So the interesting thing about a lobster is that, you know, it, um, it, 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 it outgrows its shell, right? And so what happens is when it, when it, when it, when it gets that sensation of being the shell being too tight, its outer cover being too tight, it goes behind a rock and it sheds the shell and then grows a new shell, right? Now, the thing is, if that initial impetus of discomfort wasn't there, 
it wouldn't have the ability to grow or even know that it should grow. The presence of that discomfort, like if that discomfort, if you took like, you know, I don't know, um, Prozac or whatever, like this, you know, uh, uh, whatever sort of drugs that people try to take to just do away with all sort of suffering, um, it wouldn't allow for that growth. And so, and, and we see that when we look at, um, you know, when, when, when we go to the Quran, for instance, like what is the, what, what is the, what is the, what is the, the purpose of this suffering? What is the purpose of the testing? So for instance, in the Quran, Allah says, uh, and we will surely test you with something of fear and hunger and a loss of wealth and lives and fruits. But give glad tidings to the patient. We spoke about patient being a virtue and it's kind of highlighted here again. The verse then continues after that. It says, musiba." When a disaster strikes them, they say, Indeed, they say, indeed, we are from God. We belong to God. Indeed, to him is a return. Point being is that suffering is not just meaningless. It has meaning. And part of that meaning is in the development or the spiritual development and progress of the human being. In fact, when you go through the Quran, you'll notice that when prophets and messengers are sent, one of their functions is um, tazkiyah, the word tazkiyah, yuzakki, right? Like to zakashe, it's to grow. And it's to not only to purify, but to grow, right? That growth is not possible unless you have suffering, right? And this may be kind of a, 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 a some people may be reminded of um, uh, the free will defense by Alvin Plantiga. And I was, uh, I always tell some of my, uh, Christian interlocutors, when we're having these discussions, I say, you know, uh, Alvin Plantinga's free will defense, I think, is a really great defense if you were Muslim, <laughs> right? I think if you're Christian, uh, you may be a bit hard pressed to, to justify it. But anyhow, um, okay, uh, so let's finish off the story here real quick. Uh, so, and I think I just already mentioned this one and mentioned when the angels, uh, and mentioned when we said that the angels prostrate before Adam. So they prostrate except for Iblis. He refused and was arrogant and became of the disbelievers. All right. Uh, now, and we said, وَقُلْنَا يَا آدَمْ أُسْكُنْ أَنْتَ وَزَوْجُكَ الْجَنَّةِ And, oh, Adam, we said, Adam, dwell you and your wife in paradise. وَكُلَا مِنْهَا رَغَدًا حَيْثُ شِتُّمَا And, you know, eat therefrom in abundance wherever, wherever you will. وَلَا تَقْرَبَ هَذِهِ الشَّجَرَةِ and do not come close to this tree. Indeed, you will become among the wrongdoers. So again, drawing parallels to the to the to the biblical narrative that again there is a tree. They are all told don't come close to it. So those are those are similar things. Um, and so we can we can see that as as kind of a parallel between the between the two uh, uh, the two texts here. Okay. But then, and this is the equivalent of the, I guess the serpent coming in the biblical narrative. But then Satan shows up, right? And Satan caused them to slip. Now let's spend just a few minutes here because I think the terms used here and, and some of the and, and, and some of the phenomena that's happening here is, is really important. First of all, zalla, right? Zal is to slip. It doesn't signify an absolute fall as if it's almost impossible to get back up. Right? So when you slip, it's like you slipped up. You know, even when you, when even perhaps we use that in, in our vernacular sometimes, say, you know, we slipped up. It means you kind of, it's not something that's 
you know, uh, uh, um, um, you can't recover from it. Now, if you under, if you take this understanding of what happened here and you juxtapose it with, you know, the the kind of the Christian understanding of um, how do they term it? The uh, the 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 cosmic uh, what's the term that uh, that they use? The cosmic um, uh, some sort of cosmic event that happens, a cosmic sin that happened of some sort. It's just of great proportions that as if there's no way to come back from it or whatever it might be, the Quranic discourse is very different, right? shaytan. So shaytan caused them to just slip. Second, caused them, huma, right? Caused both of them to slip. So that's sort of now, okay, the woman, the woman is the one that starts off. She's the one that's tempted. She's the one that eats. And then the husband follows her. That entire discourse is missing, right? In fact, it's very clear uh, and he caused both of them to slip, shaitan or, or uh, Satan here, right? From that place. Um, and it's after that, and, and, and then remove that condition from in which they had been. So we're not told what that is. And we said, and this is God saying, oh, go down all of you as enemies of one another. You will have upon the earth a place of settlement and provision for a time. Again, this was in the original plan from the very get-go. And this is not some sort of st state of permanence that you experience death and that is the end all be all, but this is a like a, a like a temporary sort of um sort of sort of thing that's going to happen, right? Again, signifying the human project here. Okay. And now we enter into the discourse about God, right? The nature of God. So if you remember, I start off by saying, you know, uh, we are all sinners before God. Uh, we covered the we part, who, who am I as a human being from the Islamic discourse. We covered hopefully sins. We we talked a little bit about that. Now we come to God, right? And this verse is kind of something that if you if you really kind of read it, you understand it, you find that it is very um it is very comforting, right? So in this state that Adam is in, now he slipped, you know, him and his wife has slipped, they made a mistake. There's a type of distance, right? There may be a type of like, in a sense, loneliness. Because remember, you don't have like a whole population of human beings right now, right? So you can imagine the state that that Adam and his wife are in, and the words that now come are, Adam So now, فتلقى means that God meets them or, or, or kind of introduces himself or comes to them, you know, with these words. And, uh, you know, and he accepts their repentance, right? These words that are taught, because remember, the first source of, of the words that are being taught are from God. So not only is God going to forgive Adam, but give Adam the tools to be able to ask for forgiveness, right? To be able to, 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 to kind of turn back to God. Second, right? That he, 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 he accepts his repentance. Now, the English doesn't do it justice because it's, you know, toba is like a turning. So if you think about when you are, you know, distance from, when you have, a, when you're distant from the divine, Usually it's because you're not giving the divine some sort of attention, right? You've kind of given other things. You've given other things importance, right? Whether that be things that are okay, like your family or whatever it might be, or those are things that, you know, like drinking and debauchery and whatever it might be. But the attention isn't God, right? The attention isn't front and center. I want to you know, submit myself to the divine and so on and so forth. But the fact that Allah, right, or God says that, you know, he turns towards him mercifully turning towards him. Like you may have turned away, oh human being, but God is now turning towards you just ever ready to accept your repentance. And that's why after that it says, huwa tawabur rahim. He is ever turning just as like, you know, that you get the sense that he's 
waiting for you just to come back, right? And that, when you understand understand the divine, understand God as is expressed in the Quran, you find that this is a God not that is you know that that is just you know ever vengeful and wrathful and that that's, but rather it is a God of mercy and love and constantly wanting um, us to come back to Him, come us to you know take that that we, yes we will sin, but that we're always going to turn back to God. Okay, so that was just kind of. You know the the entire uh, I I tried to put into uh, as concisely as possible in a sense the two stories juxtaposing them. Uh, we can definitely explore more. Uh, I'm thinking that uh, maybe there's some questions we can engage with, inshallah, um, and we can kind of expound more upon um, some of the topics that I spoke about, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum, Sheikh, for this uh, you know excellent presentation contrasting uh, Islam's stance on human anthropology and sin uh, with Christianity's perspective. And, uh, you know, I pray that your presentation has given our listeners, uh, particularly uh, Christians, um, much food for thought. Um, now, uh, I, you know, you know, uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, you're, uh, as, as you're familiar with, you know, Muslim Christian discourse, uh, uh, you know, some, some questions I might throw your way right now may not come as a surprise. Now, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of Christians might listen to what, to what you've said right now. And they would say, Fahad, we don't feel that uh, that the God in Islam, that the God of Islam, you know, yeah. takes sin seriously enough. We uh, believe that God takes sin way too seriously to just merely simply forgive. Right. Therefore, there must be blood spilled. And this is where the atonement comes in, right? And, uh, you know, just to build up on that question. So I'm going to be throwing, uh, you know, sub questions to you right now, building up on that. And they will say that God cannot just simply forgive just how you have mentioned right now, just, uh, you know, in, in your last slide, um, how he simply forgave uh, Adam and Aesanam, because that will compromise his infinite justice. And we need to find a way to balance between God's infinite justice and infinite mercy, and that can only be, that can only happen at the cross, the atonement. Right. And this is something that they that they consistently bring up. So, sure. you know, oh, hopefully, inshallah, we could you know benefit from some right. of your thoughts on this. Um. Sure. So, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, uh, you know, I think this is in some that's, that's that is brought up. Um. You know, in my in my discussions with Christians, this is you know brought up is that look, does, does God just kind of simply wink at sin? And kind of simply dismiss it mm. as if um you know that, that muslims don't take sin seriously and i think that's that's unfortunate because you know you'll find even within the quran when you look at um you know the battle of tabuk uh you'll find that when god describes you know the fact that they didn't go out and they they were in, that they they sinned in a sense that the, the earth was kind of crumbling upon them is squeezing them that that's how they felt so I think from one perspective, it's not simply saying that, okay, well, Muslims don't really give you know much weight to sin. That's just not really true. Because again, we're looking at, it's not just the sin, but the one you're, you've sinned against. So that's one aspect. Second thing is when we simply say that God cannot forgive and there must be a sacrifice, that there must be some sort of mechanism by which he forgives, we've taken uh, the omnipotence of God and limited it. We say, okay, God is omnipotent except, right? And he has impotence in this one area. 
you know, you maybe want to ask your interlocutor, like, why is he impotent in this area, right? If you if you say he's omnipotent, he can do, you know, he, he's not limited by, you know, what he can do, right? So why is it that the exception is this particular space? Have you not then limited the omnipotence of God, right? By saying that he cannot forgive. Now, the question would arise, um, well, what about the justice, right? Isn't that, does not God have to be just? And we say that, look, when it comes to God, that he is maximally perfect in his justice and maximally perfect in his mercy. And in fact, maximally perfect in all of his names and attributes as such that there's no deficiency in any of his other names and attributes. Where this confusion can kind of would sometimes arise is when we give absolutes to the names and attributes of God, right? Where we say that he is all forgiving, all justice. Yeah, if you say he's all forgiving and he's all justice, this does become a contradiction. But that's not our conception of the divine. We say he's maximally forgiving. At the same time, he's maximally just, and there's no deficiency in each, right? Exactly. And he has many names and attributes, and therefore his forgiving does not compromise his justice, right? These are not two contradictory things that are that are occurring. Once you understand that God is maximally perfect in all his names and attributes, as such, there's no deficiency in any of his other names and attributes. Yeah, so, I think it's very helpful to use that word maximal because you want to stress that there's no deficiency. So when we're saying that God is maximally perfect, we're insisting that he is treating everyone fairly. But the problem is that we get used to saying God's attributes are infinite. And therefore, when we say right. infinite, we think about unrestricted and right. unconditional, right? So, and, but no one really believes that. Even yeah. Christians themselves won't believe that God is literally all forgiving and that he's literally forgiving everyone. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be an exclusivist uh, religion. And, you know, uh, just anyone who's familiar with Islam knows very well just how seriously sin is taken. The Prophet has taught us to seek forgiveness. We, we are supposed to emulate him. And he's, he, he sought forgiveness uh, more than 70 times uh, a day. Uh, you know, read the, the Islamic, uh, you know, uh, text and you see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does account us for our sins in multiple ways. Uh, he could punish, punish us in this life for our sins. He could send down disasters to punish us for our sins. He could uh, make us go through trials and tribulations as punishment for our sins. Uh, he could yeah. punish us in the grave. Uh, we could have a painful death. All this could expiate uh, our sins, right? Or we could enter hell temporarily. May Allah protect you and I and all of us from that as an expiation for our sins. So how can you read all that and then say, yeah, your God is a God that just winks at sin. Yeah, it, it's it it, it, it really uh, you know that that doesn't make any sense. Um, and and and, and, the, and the and the irony is that even Thomas Aquinas, who's like one of the most prominent Christian theologians, he himself said, rationally speaking, the atonement wasn't necessary. Right. right? So he believes in the atonement, obviously through his proof text, but he says, look, it's not necessary. Uh, God could have found another mechanism to forgive us. So even their own prominent Christian theologians wouldn't even rush That's to say this theory. was the only way, right? Right, right. But then, then, then you have to then you have to give theories of atonement. Like, why mm -hmm. is this the mechanism, right? And that gets into you know so many different theories. You know the Christus, uh, you know Christus Victor theory and this theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, of these, uh, that you know, and then at the end of the day, it's all to kind of you know uh, you know to to provide an understanding of the omnipotence of God having impotence in a certain space, in a certain domain, right? How are you going to explain that? That's where a lot of these theories come in, you know, mm -hmm. these atonement theories. 
earlier um, earlier when you showed the diagram of the heart and you're and you talked about you know the 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 you know the concept of filtra and how if we have a pre we have inbuilt in us a predisposition to be better now here christians they also take uh, uh issue with the word better because they would say how will you be better in the sight of god your good deeds are worthless are worthless to god they cannot purchase uh salvation you cannot earn your salvation from god and so they try to portray our stance as if we're trying to say yeah you know uh, when we do good deeds we're kind of earning our way into paradise um what are your thoughts on this in terms of how they try to frame the islamic stance and, and in terms of how they you know uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't want to straw man them uh by saying that they undermine the importance of of good works uh, especially thinking about the Protestants here, because they would say that good works are a, are the fruits of having the correct faith, but they do undermine its role in attaining salvation, in my opinion, uh, right. especially the Protestants. Right. What are your thoughts on this? Do we Muslims think that we are earning paradise this way? Uh, you know, how, what, what role does faith and works play in the salvation, uh, in the process of attaining salvation? Sure. So let me try to address this in, in two ways. One would be more of an apologetics formulation, one would be more of a polemical formulation. So from the apologetic stance in terms of like, okay, so how do we understand this? Well, first of all, um, there's a, a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, where, you know, uh, the Prophet Muhammad says that um, uh, your, your deeds will not save any of you. Mm. So clearly he's saying that, okay, so your deeds are not going to save you, right? Um and then some of the companions who were around him, they said, not even you, O messenger of God. You know, and I sometimes reflect upon that. I said, mm. you, know, oh, you really think about the, um, you know, who had the guts to say that about the prophet, right? Oh, but anyhow, so you know, he said, not even you, Ya Rasulullah. And he says, not even me, unless God envelops me with his mercy. Oh. Okay. So one of the things that, you know, there's a discussion on this hadith. There's, you know, there's a, a, a very famous um uh, commentary in this hadith by Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, rahimahullah. And he mentions that, that you know, when it looks, when we look at deeds and earning and the, and these type of things, like, do we earn paradise or do we enter paradise by the mercy of God, right? Um, you know, th this is a discussion which, you know, there's kind of two opinions, right? Um, because if you say that you enter paradise by the mercy of God, what's the point of doing good deeds? Because that would be the general, that would be the general retort, right? Even from our Christian friends and things like that. Like, look, then why are you doing good deeds? Like, why are you bothering with your five prayers and your fasting and all these other things? You know, if you're, you know, if it's the mercy of God and some of them may go as far as saying, oh, it's just arbitrary, then how are we supposed to, you know, then why bother? So this discussion isn't something that's foreign to the Islamic tradition. Um, so Ibn Rajab kind of talks about, it. he said, there's two ways of understanding this. One is that what your deeds do is that they increase or elevate your rank in paradise because for for us paradise is not just one monolith it actually has stations and levels within it um so therefore your ranks can go up and down based on your on your you know on your deeds um so that was one opinion the other opinion which i think is the stronger opinion i think Ibn Rajab himself inclines towards it and some of my teachers incline towards this opinion as well is that you enter paradise by the mercy of God, but the mercy of God is predicated upon your deeds. Yes. Okay. Let me let me take a step back here and let's try to you know kind of understand this a little bit. First of all, 
if you looked at your deeds, we would agree with our Christian friends and say, look, our deeds are not good enough, right? Yeah, like yeah. if you think about all of the blessings that God gives us, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you think about right now, your molar tooth, mm. right? Nobody's thinking about it unless that I just pointed out or unless you have to go to the dentist, right? Mm. But you use this molar tooth, you know, every single day you masticate food and you don't think twice. That's one blessing. When you think about all the blessings of God, let's say you try to make a list, that's a never ending list almost, right? Right, as um, as God says, if you try to enumerate the blessings of God, you will not be able to do it. So you, this is unending list, and then you have your little paltry deeds here. I mean, you're, you know, our Christian friends are right. Like you think your deeds are actually going to get you into paradise? Like, of course not. Right. But that being the case where we, we say that we don't, we enter paradise by the mercy of God. And that's predicated upon good deeds is that he takes those paltry deeds of ours mm -hmm. and gives it way more value and credit yeah. than they actually have. Right. And that's the important point is that, you know, it's it's not that we say we're earning paradise by the soul deeds, but it's by the mercy of God giving way more credit to those deeds yeah. that he allows us to enter paradise by his mercy. Okay. And this can uh, be right. certain uh, deeds are multiplied by 10. Sometimes they're multiplied by 700. Sometimes. Exactly. exactly. So for, for example, Even just La ilaha illallah on the scale is, is heavier. Is, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so we, if we look at, um, um, you know, the, the, when we look at like actions and intention, for instance, mm -hmm. right. We know, that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he says that, you know, when you intend to do a good deed, you're rewarded for it. Mm. So if you haven't taken action, you haven't done it yet, mm. but there's a reward for it. Mm. If you actually go through with it and do it, then you have 10 to 700 times the, the reward. Now you juxtapose that with an evil deed. If you're going to do an evil deed or a sin and you intend it, there's nothing written upon you, right? Again, going back to the whole concept of desires, you're not held accountable for your desires. So there's nothing. If you go through with it, it's only written as one sin, right? And if you decide not to do it, you hold yourself back and you give up on that attention, you're actually rewarded, right? Yeah. So, you know, we say like the the, 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 the cards are stacked in your favor. Yeah. And that's that, that exemplifies the, the mercy of God. In fact, one of the names of God, right? Ashakur. It's a very beautiful name because it, it really it takes this point and makes it very clear, right? So the name Ashakur uh, comes from the concept of shukr. Now, most people that speak Arabic, Urdu, they, they understand shukr to be gratitude. But shukr comes from the, the a term, um, you know, when they talk about, for instance, uh, an animal that is shakur, dabatun shakur, right? So this is like an animal that you feed it a little bit of food and it gets fattened really quick, just a little bit of food. So it has a a remarkably slow metabolism, the exact opposite of what we want, right? We want, we want to eat a lot and just, you know, has, still have a six pack, right? So this is the opposite. Uh, uh, you want an animal that you feed it a little bit, it's going to get fattened. And so when you slaughter it, you've got a lot of meat, right? As opposed to some emaciated animal, you're feeding it like, you know, till the cows come home and it's still skinny. So that's what's known as, a, as, as an animal that's, that's shakur. What God does in the realm of the divine is that he takes those paltry deeds and he magnifies the value, right? Um, and that's what we say is that we don't enter paradise just by actions, mm -hmm. but the fact that God's mercy is upon those actions. And so therefore he, he's given us a lot more value than they actually have. So the question, very simply put, do you enter paradise by the mercy of God? Of course, it has to be by the mercy of God, but that doesn't negate the fact 
that we still have to do our part and do good deeds, right? Exactly. That was kind of the-, the so I guess the, it's useful, Barakalavik, for that. So I guess it's useful to maybe say that good deeds are a necessary condition for entering paradise, but not a sufficient. Not a sufficient. So mm -hmm. it, it, they don't suffice on their own to take you into paradise, but they are necessary. And, and you know, you know, in Ahl Sunnah, you know, they're very clear in teaching the um, the necessary connection between belief in the heart and your actions uh, and that and what you and 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 the tongue and the actions of your limbs, right? So, what you do, sig you know, signifies the 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 the, the amount of, uh, the strength of your iman, so the purity of your heart and the strength of your belief, right? So that will manifest in your actions. So it, it just not actions floating you know, in a silo and some sort of out of context. It's exactly. in, right. interlinked with the purity of your heart. And it's yeah. it's the heart that Allah SWT is, made, is, is also seeing. Qalban Salim is, is, is it that clean heart that you're going to come free of monotheism, uh, free of polytheism on that day. Um, and those actions will signify that. And, and the other thing is, keep in mind that it gives credence to the entire purpose of why we're here, right? We don't want to just you know, have this discussion abstract, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your spiritual growth is related to this, right? You doing actions, meaning you have, like your actions have um, moral value, right? If you're going to now say, and so this is where I, was, I said I want to take a apologetic approach and then take a polemical approach now. Mm. So if you're going to say that there was this kind of cosmic sin that now caused Adam and all the gener subsequent generations to be in this state of sin, that that particular event is outside of human agency. In other words, it's not, we didn't choose it, we didn't do it. And the solution is also outside of our human agency. We're not, you know, we don't, you know, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and so on and so forth. Okay, you have these two events and in between is just human beings. So what are we doing? Like, what is the purpose? How do we grow? How do we spiritually get closer to God if the deeds of themselves are kind of just there, right? And so even when it comes to understanding kind of the, 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 the Christian purview here, the, the Christian understanding, you know, you've got like these third-party transactions that are happening and you just happen to be there, right? And so how does that give your life meaning? How does it infuse it with meaning like it does in the Islamic paradigm, right? So just on a side point, I think that's important to uh, to mention. So, um, you know, another thing that they bring up very often that the, the, is that they'll say, look, at least us Christians, we're assured of our salvation. We're assured sure. of our salvation. Sure. Uh, Jesus died for us, um, and we're guaranteed. We're guaranteed salvation. You Muslims, on the other hand, you're constantly worried whether Allah is going to forgive you your particular sin or not. You're worried about whether you're, the scales on the Day of Judgment is going to be heavier uh, on the side of the good deeds compared uh, to, uh, to, to, to the side of the sins. You are living a life of anxiety while we're living a life of confidence and mental and spiritual comfort. Um, what, what, what would be your thoughts on, um, on that claim? So, so I think from, from one perspective, I mean, one thing is, is that that sort of anxiety or stress or whatever, not all anxiety and stress is bad, right? Because you, like I said, when I was talking about the lobster, like if you don't have that anxiety and stress, it doesn't allow you to grow. So putting that aside for just a second, you know, the whole concept of being promised paradise or have a guarantee of entering into heaven. 
Um, first, I don't think all Christian denominations uh, subscribe to that. Um, mm. I, that's uh, that's not something that all of them do. But if that is the Christian, that, if that's the position that the person is taking, um, I think that whereas it might in some form or fashion have a psychological value, but as to be something that's objectively true, I think if we start to really interrogate that as a position, you'll find that, that it starts to unravel very quickly. Okay, so it's it's kind of it it reminds me of what's known as um, uh, the no true Scotsman fallacy, mm. right? By Andy. right. So this fallacy, if, for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, is basically it takes a um, a a a a generalized a generalized set, right? It takes a gen- generalization and doesn't accept a counterexample. Okay, so the way this works, I mean, Andrew Flew outlined this. He said, imagine now you have a um, you know, it, it's in the news that that some person committed some heinous crime, right? Some, you know, some like you rape someone or kill someone or whatever it is. And someone who is, you know, a Scotsman says no Scotsman would ever do such a thing. And now after a little while, you find out that indeed the person that did it was, you know, a Scotsman. So then he, instead of, you know, letting the counterexample, um, you know, take away the universal, universal generalization, he readjusts his position and says, no true Scotsman would ever do such a thing, right? Now, here's the thing. If we, if we, if, if a person as an individual says, look, I am promised paradise, you know, for whatever reason, because God says so in the Bible or whatever it might be. Um, one of the things is that there are counterexamples, all right? So uh, if a person is going to enter paradise by the grace of God, and we have that grace of God because we believe in, in you know, in Jesus and his sacrifice and so on and so forth. What about the people that that turned away, that left the faith, that became atheists, that became Muslim, that became whatever it might be? Now, the, the position, instead of saying, well, yeah, that's true, so then we're not really promised paradise, instead of uh, adjusting the, the, the position, they take the counterexample and say, well, they probably were not true Christians, yeah. right? Or they didn't they didn't actually have that grace from God to begin with. Mm-hmm. But then that kind of leads us to a certain problem because we as individuals, the only way for us to know then is for us to come to, to say that we have infallible knowledge. We know what's going to happen in the future. How do we know that, you know, that in the future we don't, you know, become atheist? Exactly. So is it that, we, is it that once we have the grace and we know it, and once we, we only need to believe once and whatever happens after that, we're good? I don't think Christians would follow that. But again, you have to then take, you know, you have to pick a lane then, right? You can't say like, okay, well, they must have not had it in the beginning, but then how do you know you have it? How do you know you're not going to fall into that and eventually lose it? So in reality, you really don't have the guarantee and your position, you know, uh, objectively is closer to the Muslim position, in fact, right? Now, again, as psychological comfort and things like that, sure, you can take that and, and, and believe that, and that's fine. But when you really start to kind of, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, dig down and kind of uncover some of it, you find that it's not, you know, it doesn't really have the, uh, when you put it down to like intellectual scrutiny, it's really not going to be as objective as we might think it is. No, 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 that's clear. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with you fully. And, and I think it's important to clarify that when Muslims say, you know, I'm going to enter paradise, inshallah, there's no doubt, no, no Muslim has any doubt about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's promise to the believers. 
Yep, exactly. Uh, that, that's something that has to be made clear to you know to, to our Krishna interlocutors, right? That that when we say inshallah, and then they kind of say, oh, so you're not sure, right? Sure. You're not saying yes, I'm entering paradise, uh, right. which I think is a little bit arrogant, right? Uh, even within their worldview, uh, I find that to be arrogant. But um, what we're trying to say is that look. Obviously, we believe that Allah's promise to the believers will be fulfilled. The yeah. question is, as you rightly pointed out, Sheikh Bad, is that we're not sure whether we're going to live up to that mark, right? We're not sure whether we're going to die in that state. Right. So even if we look at the differences between the you know different Christian groups, like the Arminians and the Christians, right? So Arminians would say, yes, apostasy is possible. It is yeah. possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and to leave you, and you fall out of grace. So on that worldview, exactly what you said right now, Shafat, is like, okay, so how do you know with 100% certainty that you won't apostatize? Like, how do you know when your own belief system says that that's possible? Right. And when it comes right. to the Calvinist, when they say, no, once the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it will never leave you. But again, as you pointed it out, as you pointed out, uh, how do you know that the Holy Spirit is in you to, uh, in the first place? And John Calvin, he spoke about this concept of evanescent grace, evanescent mm -hmm. grace, where you could be a Christian who falsely thinks he has the spirit dwelling in him, but he really yeah. doesn't. And then we step into the new, into the new, no Scotsman's fallacy, as you brilliantly, brilliantly pointed out. And, you know, and some, uh, some Christian interlocutors that would say, yeah, but you see, we can know if the Holy Spirit is, is dwelling in us because... The Bible gives us some criteria to, to figure out. But even when you look at the criteria mentioned in the first book of John, it's vague. Like they would say, one, one way you know that you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you, is that you love your fellow Christians. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people could love the, think that they, you know, actually love their fellow Christians and, and apostatize later, right? Or you don't sin habitually. Well, how much right. is habitually? Like five times a day, 10 times a day, 15 times a day? Even that criteria is, is, is vague, and it's not. And it's not. I mean, at, so I think the they're they're day, in the same, you know, right. same boat as us, uh, whether they like to admit it or not. <laughs> no, exactly. And and at the end of the day, it's a knowledge claim, right? Because either you have to claim infallible knowledge, right, or you take the position to say, well, yeah, I really don't know, and so we really don't know. But unless you can claim that you know the future and you know exactly where you're going to be, you have no idea if you had it in the first place, right? So it's just kind of like. Again, you've got to pick your lane, man. Like you can't have both here. Exactly. So, um, so you know, happen. before we close, Sheikh, I mean, uh, you know, are there any resources related to you know Muslim Christian discourse? Um, it could be apologetics, polemics, anything. Right? Uh, no, you, um, you'd like to recommend our listeners to check well, I'm it gonna, out. Uh, I'm gonna maybe do like a shameless plug here. <laughs> no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and recommend some of the resources on Sapiens Institute, right? right. Um, Dr. Uthman Latif, yeah. um, um, you know, he's done a lot of work in this space. Um, he, you know, he published a book, um, you know, where he speaks about kind of, uh, you know, just the, the Adamic conundrum, as we were speaking about, there's articles on there. And we have a course that's related to the book as well. And so if a person is interested in this concept of sin and salvation, um, I think that book is a valuable resource because again, it, it takes the conversation from one that is like, let's say intensely biblical to one that now brings it to a very human real level and say, okay, well, let's look at some of the ramifications in one's life and things like mm -hmm. that. What does that mean for a person? 
So I think that's definitely one good resource. We have other courses. Uh, people are worried. Uh, people are um, would like to know about other issues within Christianity. So we have a course on uh, Christologies, for instance, uh, that is quite uh, deep, quite profound, um, and other courses. And that's on our free learning platform. And so all of our material, uh, alhamdulillah, is is free. And so it's free for you to download. It's free for you to take the courses. The only thing that we say is that if you, you know, we don't we don't necessarily have all of this stuff on YouTube because we'd like for you to engage with it as a student. So you internalize it, you study it, and then you actually use it. And the best way of kind of paying us for that is actually learning it and then applying it and making dawah, inshallah. So, yeah. Uh, any final words before we, we end the session? Um, no, just uh, to you and to the entire uh, blogging theology team and everyone that's involved. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, anything that that was positive, that was beneficial, you know, that's all from from Allah at the end, as you know, as, as we say. And then any sort of mistakes, any sort of uh, slip ups, anything like that was all from myself and, and from shaitan. And, um, you know, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless all of the viewers, all of the people that are watching uh, and for those who, you know, uh, come from the Christian faith, uh, to stand in that possibility. And I ask Allah to guide us all to that which is true and allow us to die in a state of submitting onto Allah and let that, let our final words be, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Ameen, ameen. And with that, we'll conclude and I'll greet, uh, part you and our listeners with the Islamic greetings. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.